so today we're basically just dealing with the introduction, setting up who Isaiah is, what he's doing, what the world looks like, and dealing with a little more of the general book than specific parts of it. Um, so I don't remember, I feel like I give this spiel a lot, and I don't remember who I've given it to, so you guys might be getting it again. It's probably been a few months since I've given it anyway. So, what is prophecy? I, I would not give you a lot a slot on the little sheets. Does everyone have a sheet? But no, I would never give you a no, slot. Oh, you do have a sheet. I'm deaf. No, I don't give you slots on the sheets for rhetorical questions. You have to write down my brilliant rhetorical questions. Okay, I'm ready. A warnings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the question I'm asking. I don't know that that's right. Well, you're very accurate in your question. <laughs> um, a lot of people like to see prophecy as, you know, kind of more of the wild predictions of the future, more of the almost Nostradamus type deal where this is going to happen then, or and if you dig through prophecy enough, you get all these numbers, and this is when Jesus is coming back, or this is whatever. You get some really, really weird stuff depending on how people deal with prophecy. That's why I feel like it's very important to understand what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Um, so right out of the gate, obviously, prophecy isn't going to be these guys sitting down and saying, here's exactly what's going to happen, here's how it's going to happen, you know exactly what's going to happen, so you can go predict the Super Bowl, get rich, and make your lives easier. Um, because obviously none of these guys had easy lives, and they really didn't make anyone's lives immediately easier. That wasn't their concern. Um, but they do definitely deal with the future as it is given to them by the Lord. Um, so in a lot of ways, prophecy is really complicated because there are a lot of rules you can break and end up off in Crazyville. But at the same time, I feel like uh, prophecy is a very simple concept once you try to understand it as it comes from the Bible instead of saying this is what it is. Um, I feel like the Bible rather clearly shows us that the prophecy is as simple as God revealing who he is, what he is doing, and what he expects from his people. Um, so sometimes you do end up with uh, fun little number games. Uh, Revelation does that a lot more. Um, complex imagery that people try to figure out. These are all kind of parts of prophecy, part of kind of the more eloquent, more poetic literary take uh, that these different cultures, the first century Greeks and the... I'm trying to think of how to span all of the Old Testament prophets. I feel like 8th century through maybe the 4th, I think, is as far as I need to go, or is too far 5th. I get confused switching because BC does the centuries backwards. And it's a nightmare when you're switching between sides of the switch. So it does deal with a lot of those things, but the heart of the matter is uh, who God is, what he's doing, and what he expects from his people. So most of the times these uh, prophetic books come in times of uncertainty, 
challenges and persecution of the church and the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So obviously points where they should be willing to sit down and listen, pay attention, because obviously whatever God has already told them up to this point wasn't sticking quite good enough. So if you get really eloquent with it, you get really almost over the top, uh, very illustrative about it. Maybe they'll do a little better job paying attention, but sadly it seems like um, stubborn people are good at staying stubborn. Um, and God tried, yes? Uncertainty, challenges, uh, and persecution of the people of God. Um, so, uh, I feel like it's a lot more important to kind of understand those ground rules for uh, exactly what prophecy is in order to have a better lag leg to stand on before you get really confused by... Uh, imagery and symbols that basically mean nothing to us as 21st century Americans, but would have meant a whole lot more um, to the people listening to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then later John. Those are the big, bigger ones in terms of being a prophetic book instead of just being a, a prophecy, a book of prophecy instead of just being a book by a prophet or about a prophet. Um, a little different, but the prophet accomplishes the same goal in general, and I think we, we think of prophecy as those bigger ones that uh, do get a little bit on the crazy side of things. So then, how should we interpret prophecy? Since we admit that it does take some kind of odd turns and it doesn't seem to go chronologically, it doesn't seem to want to conform to any way that if you're trying to get a message across today, you come out and you say it rather clearly. You say, you break it down into three little points. That's what they teach you in Bible school. You have three points. You have your main point, and all the other little points go back to that point. But you should always have three because it's boring, and people like it sometimes. Um, but obviously, that doesn't quite work with prophecy because they're coming at it from a different angle. Does anyone have any kind of approaches they take to dealing with prophecy, anything they've tried in the past that didn't work and left them frustrated and confused, anything they found that does work? Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is that the prophets were usually talking to the power brokers of their society, and um, there was a theocracy so that um, things that they're talking about a lot of times have to do with their society and the way they're going to serve God and, and how they're violating other people's concerns. And so I think that one of the th approaches is to, to realize that they're talking to the power brokers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we can certainly learn from that, but to realize these folks wound up in jails, they wound up outcasts, they wound up on the wrong side of the law, so to speak, and that they were getting uh, persecuted. But I do think that that's an important part of the different prophets, is just mm -hmm. the fact that they were speaking truth to power. Yeah. And, uh, and power doesn't like truth spoken when it's not for their advantage. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
what has not worked? I think looking for modern day countries to fill in, okay. Yeah, that's uh, the church I used to preach at. Wonderful, kind, caring people, but some I taught through Revelation. I actually had to do it twice back to back. And some of the things just were not clicking, and I don't know if it was because I wasn't entirely sure on what I was trying to get across, but prophecy can be something where people become very firmly entrenched, a little more with Revelation. I don't know a ton of people that uh, are quite as staunch on their stances in Old Testament prophecies. What? Are you naming people to make them feel bad? I was just saying that no one has a firm stance on the interpretation of Isaiah. Yeah. As opposed to Revelation. Yeah. One thing that I would say is that the, the, the people that teach the millennial views, they have pretty strong impressions about Ezekiel mm-hmm. and uh, some of that, I, uh, at least some of them. Yeah, that's kind of why I feel the need to deal with this every time I deal with these major books of prophecy um, is because... Um, and it's kind of confusing because Revelation does come after, but Revelation seems a little clearer to us because uh, it's one less language removed. It's almost sort of one less culture removed. Um, it's not dealing with an actual impending crisis like these are dealing with the upcoming exiles of Assyria and Babylon. It's much more of, you're the church now. This is what the church looks like, and this is what the church's future looks like. But you have to tie in Revelation because you end up with a lot of the people with the different millennial views that kind of go through Revelation. They already have their ideas. They've got the um, their kind of numbers they've picked out that tells them what's going to happen. The symbols are this. The locusts are helicopters. That's when I, I love to make fun of that one. If anyone believes that, I'm sorry, but I don't buy it. Um, but a lot of these people, uh, just kind of as a natural outpouring of the way they think about Revelation, kind of the forefront of the books of prophecy in the Bible, then they go back and they say, well, when you look at these other books of prophecy, see this lines up here and this lines up here, and you get even weirder, um, notorious... Uh, and poorly written book called Love Wins does this. I don't recommend reading it. I read it for a class and it was painful and depressing. Um, But he does this, he goes through and in his attempts to kind of explain away the concept of hell and that God could do that to people, although he says he never actually said that. It was very strongly Uh, conveyed. But he goes back and where does he go? He goes into Jeremiah and Isaiah and he says, well look this is is what he's talking about here. Um, So messing with one of the books of prophecy you can mess with all of them. Uh, So that's why I think they should be dealt with rather carefully. Um, Not quite with kitty gloves but like I said before this is God revealing who he is, what he's doing and what he expects from his people. that sounds like a lot of very serious issues that I wouldn't want to prance around with trying to fit my own agenda into because... Matt, uh, also, do we have to like look at the Bible and, and see that some of those prophecies were meant for those specific people? Right. And I, th- I almost hope that's rather apparent to a lot of people, but some people, kind of depending on the traditions you've been raised in, um, like the idea of that 
everything here doesn't apply to us. They're probably good about saying, well, Exodus is a little more about them, and Leviticus, we don't want to deal with that, or Deuteronomy. <laughs> Numbers is just for putting children to sleep. But um, some people do come away with a very selfish, gently selfish, ethnocentric idea that all of these things have to mean more than what they did. Or that couldn't have been exactly what he meant, even though it lines up like we deal with uh, the man of lawlessness, the abomination. Yeah. That's a tongue twister somehow. Um, But like you come up with those, I actually had someone who said, no, that's the Pope. It's like, well, it really looks like it was this Jewish guy in the first century. No, it's the Pope. It can't be this other guy. (laughs) It's like, okay. I'm not always a fan of Popes, but I don't think they're quite the harbingers of the end times. (laughs) And so, I mean, there's a lot of things that can go sideways. There's a lot of crazy rabbit holes. And some of them are kind of fun to deal with kind of from the outside. But this is why I think we should approach prophecy uh, very carefully and very respectfully because uh, this is very much God saying, this is the way I want things done. You're not doing it, so this is what is going to happen, especially for the big three in the Old Testament. I guess Daniel's pretty big too, but I think he makes too much sense to be included with these other ones because he sits down and he says, well, this is what it is. So Daniel's the prophet for lightweights. (laughs) I still love him. Uh, So, I feel like uh, there are two general approaches to prophecy. Um, That is that this is entirely literal, in which case the world starts looking a whole lot more like a kid's fantasy novel and it gets really weird really fast. Um, Or this is entirely figurative and this is all imagery and this is all kind of abstract concepts to get these people to kind of understand Uh, what's going on uh, to kind of help them make sense of the world around them. I feel like both of these fall rather short. Some people will mix them, but I feel like in general you can, uh, if you mess up up these lines in just a few places, you can really throw off uh, the author's purpose, well, the speaker's purpose and the purpose that God has for the book in the first place. Um, That's why I feel like the most important approach, or most appropriate approach uh, to dealing with prophecy is to just try to read it naturally, to try to understand it naturally, um, come at it from a position of this is for, this is from a God that doesn't change to a group of people, his group of people, who are too stubborn to change. And so I feel like when we approach it like that, um, we realize that more than we like to admit, we're still people of God who are too stubborn to change. We might not be as bad as some of these guys, some of these kings in the Old Testament are absolutely terrible, um, and that's why they get books of prophecy about them, dealing with the repercussions of their actions. But we haven't changed that much in terms of our rebellious spirit, our tendency to ignore warnings from God. I mean, we even have it all in handy little books that they throw in hotel rooms for free. Um, And we still have a lot of these issues, um, as well as serving the same God that hasn't changed at all. Uh, And so I feel like there is a lot that carries it over 
in terms of what can be applied, what it can mean for us, but it is never all about us. Um, and that's kind of a good thing because a lot of this is really harsh and we don't want it to be all about us. We want to be able to find some areas where it reflects on uh, the modern condition of the church. Um, but ultimately this is for the preservation, uh, the refinement, and the endurance of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, so sometimes you'll come to really weird parts, and if you can take the time, do go ahead and try to kind of figure out what some of the big elements of especially Hebrew imagery are. Um, that'll even help you with Revelation because he's Jewish and a lot of his imagery is Jewish, uh, more so than even Greek. Um, understand what these things symbolize. Uh, and it won't make it perfect because we're not there, we weren't there, we haven't lived that culture. Um, but it can make some of the visions and crazy, I say crazy in quotations, parts uh, a little more manageable. Um, so, um, moving on to the world as Isaiah knew it. Uh, Isaiah was actually from... Judah, which by this point we already have the split between uh, Judah being the southern kingdom, Israel is the northern kingdom. It started uh, back when the sons of Solomon couldn't get along, so they decided they were just going to rip the kingdom in half, and I don't think that's quite what Solomon meant with the little baby illustration where he was going to cut it in half. Um, but nobody said, no, you can have it, and we can save the whole thing. Instead, they rip it in half, and it's all downhill from there. So since then, we've had uh, predominantly bad kings, and uh, the beginning of Isaiah, actually the first verse, gives us a pretty good um, timeline for where this book is coming from uh, out of history. He says, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So this is actually... The last, make sure I have five, the last, no, four. See, I can't read. The last four kings of, uh, these four kings in the southern kingdom, not the last four, because uh, this is right around 703 to 701 is you have your Assyrian captivity. Uh, they come in, basically level the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and the southern kingdom of Judah hangs on till around 586. Uh, and so um, Uzziah reigned for, he technically reigned for 52 years. Uh, 24 of those were alongside his father, so I only count him for 28. Jotham rules for 16 years. Ahaz rules for 16 years. And Hezekiah rules for 29 years. So if we assume that Isaiah's ministry goes throughout the entire reign of all of these kingdoms, he lived a very, very long time. I don't think most people think he was there kind of end to end for these kings. Um, but at the very least, it means he had a rather long ministry. I mean, you're looking at basically a minimum of 34, 35 years, bare, bare minimum. Um, and I'm not going to quite say exactly how long it was, but to have a meaningful impact in any of these year kings, I'm going to give them about that much time. 
Um, so what he's dealing with at this point is God is finally sick and tired of how bad the kings of the north are. Um, in general, all of the kings of Israel and Judah, the whole thing, they're all pretty bad after Solomon uh, as the general rule. But the kings of the north were much, much worse. That's why you have Elijah going and setting people on fire and uh, Elisha with bears. Um, I mean, they were just as wicked as they could be. They basically gave up in any shape or any way, shape, or form of trying to pretend they were still the kingdom that they used to be a part of. Um, and so they are the first to go. Uh, like I said, around 701, I think, is kind of the end date most people give them. Uh, the king, Sennacherib, from Assyria gets uh, tired of the king of the north messing around with him. He's friends with the Babylonians, who the Assyrians had recently conquered. He's good friends with the Egyptians, who the Assyrians in general don't like. And so he decides to come and just take everything away from them. So kind of in the face of this impending doom, you have Isaiah stepping up to say, this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. And above all, this is why it's happening. Um, basically, the most catastrophic events they could possibly uh, imagine come crashing down around their heads. And Isaiah is the guy that, like I'm sure you're very popular for saying, you brought this on yourself. Uh, and so that's kind of the world he's in. Uh, I actually had one of the guys I was reading from about Isaiah say that uh, it was Isaiah's father, Amos, was a relative, it was the brother of Uzziah, I think. I can't remember exactly who it was. Basically, that Isaiah is in some way part of the royal family. So it's kind of interesting that uh, like we were talking about earlier, this is written to people in power for the most part because the little, I don't know what they did back then, is their average jobs, the peach farmers, I don't, peasants. The peasants aren't going to be sitting around saying, man, I wish I led this country better. I really could have avoided all of this stuff if I had just been better. I really don't think the peasants in general are going to be, and it sounds kind of depressing for our democratic view of society is, well, everybody's responsible for things. And it's, no, really, we're mostly going to blame that guy sitting up there with the pointy crown on his head that said, hey, we're going to worship these gods, we're going to burn our children alive, we're going to have prostitutes, all of these things. It's like, I don't think the peasants were out there setting up all this stuff to give their stuff away to these fake gods. Um, and of course, as a result of it being a conflict with people in power, uh, in general, the lives of the prophets are rather uncomfortable and unpleasant. Actually, I, according to church tradition, uh, towards the end of his ministry, Isaiah is actually uh, sawed in half by a king that didn't like him all that much. Um, the only good news about that is, uh, other than John, the apostles didn't get away either, so you're in good company. <laughs> uh, so take that to heart if you ever find out you're going to be killed for the sake of Jesus. Uh, 
dealing with the authorship of Isaiah, I find it fascinating how far out of their way people go to say, well, the authorship is actually a very complicated issue, and there are all these things you have to consider. Um, maybe it's just because I was raised in the church, and in general, at a young age, you figured out, this book is named after a guy. It's probably this guy's book. Um, Otherwise, if someone else wrote it, they'd probably put their name there. Um, if it was just like someone out of left field, obviously. I mean, uh, the way this culture worked is that you, these people were held in very, very high esteem at times when they were not being persecuted for uh, giving messages from God. But you really wouldn't go out and say, well, I said that, but his name is on it, so it's okay. That would cause quite a ruckus. Um, but anyway, uh, people do try to do that with Isaiah. Um, one of the things I found was that it was actually Isaiah writing some of the first of it, and it's not chronological, so it's hard to just exactly break down where they slice these. But then it was also his followers, his disciples that go, and they keep writing it. And then we have someone they call the second Isaiah sometime later. And by the end of it, it's taken over 100, about 100 years after Isaiah's already dead. And this guy out there, uh, more towards the area of Assyria, is still writing this stuff down. Uh, which really sounds a lot harder to pull off than Isaiah wrote the book or Isaiah, uh, my favorite way of looking at this, and it's probably just because I've studied Jeremiah the most, is Jeremiah actually had a scribe that followed him around and he said, all right, I'm going to talk and you're going to write stuff down and then we'll go over it later and it'll be great and we'll have it and my fingers won't be cramped and yours will. Um, I think that kind of approach is much more likely. That's how a lot of... Uh, Paul's stuff is done. That's why he's very specific about, I'm writing this. Uh, so that seems a lot more likely to me. And at the very most, someone probably close to Isaiah comes back and says, all right, I'm going to kind of finalize this. I'm going to not quite stylize it, but formatting and grammar checks and all that really boring stuff that the main scribe guy couldn't really be bothered to do. Um, and one of the biggest kind of issues, uh, arguments against this kind of succession or these apostles and second Isaiah approach uh, was quite simply, the commentator was rather serious. He just says, read the first verse again. It says, the vision of Isaiah. It's a singular vision. This is Isaiah's property, basically. Um, I feel like at some point someone else would have gotten up and said, no, that's really not how this went. Um, and one of the really big issues I do have with the extending the timeline of the writing of these books is that because it is a prophetic book and it does have some instances of prophecy being the future, those do sneak in. Um, I think the most notable in the book of Isaiah is he says, this guy named Cyrus is going to come up, and he's going to be in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's going to send all the people back. Well, if you're dragging out your timeline long enough, and I'm not sure if anyone really does, because I don't think Cyrus is until the mid-500s. So if they could pull off stretching it for 150-some years, 
the people, then you have people that can come and say, well, then he never really predicted the future. This second Isaiah or this disciple of Isaiah or the second Isaiah comes up and says, that sounds good. We could put that in the book. Like now that we see that Cyrus is going to do all these things, we can go back and we can add this and it'll make it look much more authoritative. It'll be mystical. It'll be cool. And I don't think that that's at all what happens with the Bible. Um, I think that if anyone ever tried to do that to the Bible, it would be rather obvious, um, especially because the Jewish people are very methodical about their bookkeeping, their records, uh, as well as um, if someone did do that, I think they would do it a lot more. They could say, well, look how much extra cool stuff we predicted. This was the exact year this was going to happen. It's like... Um, so if they are kind of cheating in that way, it would be sorely underdone. They're kind of wasting their talents for falsifying history and prophecy. Um, so I think that's just an extra part against it. Yes? I think it's um, important that we recognize the presuppositions that people have when they come to books of prophecy or just books of the Bible in general. Like, for instance, I was just uh, watching a debate between two humans. Um, about whether the Bible was the word of God, and the Muslim debater was saying, well, Peter, no one believes that second Peter was actually written by Peter, and if people just throw that out there, like people will say, well, the latter half of Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah, well, why do you believe that? Is it because you actually have good evidence that it's not written by Isaiah, or mm -hmm. is it just because you don't believe that prophecy is a thing, and therefore you circularly reason that, therefore, Isaiah can't be a prophet, because there is no God to do prophecy. And so um, being able to make sure that you point out to people, like, you have no basis for saying that Isaiah wasn't a prophet or that this wasn't written by Isaiah, nothing really substantive, um, I think is really important. Because otherwise you're just like, oh, well, there's a preponderance of scholars that say this. Anonymous scholars. <laughs> always, yeah, anonymous. always anonymous. <laughs> or like that one guy that you can name that's like a flaming atheist. <laughs> yeah, the crazy guy always has the fun ideas, but... say that I'm following you around and I'm listening to you teach, the fact that I write it down in your name and their understanding would not have been a lie. That would not have been, as long as what I wrote reflected what you believed and what mm -hmm. you taught, then me writing it in your name was not considered a lie. We right. do this thing. We, we put our thinking of what how truth is written all the way back now 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't see it that way. It'd be much like an autobiography where a, a person is telling this story to a writer and the writer writes it and it's your autobiography mm -hmm. but you're having a, a writer help you with it. So that I don't know that if Reverend Childs wrote that we should look at it as the canon. It's what God gave us. Mm -hmm. And how it came to be over time, those stories were told. Those words were repeated. Mm -hmm. And they were much more careful about their oral tradition. So I don't know how many authors there were, but the fact that it reflected what Isaiah believed and what he taught 
and who he was. Mm-hmm. I don't really know if I care if there were three authors or three styles in the book. Yeah. What I do believe is that it reflected what what God gave Isaiah to mm-hmm. teach. Yeah. yeah, it's much more about this being... I'm trying to think of how to word this. It is the actual vision of Isaiah, like verse 1 says, kind of in the vision of Isaiah the person. Uh, but we, we do this thing where if Isaiah didn't write it down, then somehow that's a lie. Well, that's not the way they would have seen it. Mm-hmm. They just would not have seen it that way. Yeah. Right. Be, uh, that's how we, I mean, when we tell stories of people who have passed, how do we tell those stories? We go to different sources who've known them at different points in their life. I mean, you might not have been able to experience, let's say, Steve Jobs at this point in his life, but you are able to go out and talk to somebody who's experienced what those truths, and then, but you were here for this part of his life. Mm-hmm. You can piece all those together and tell a story. I mean, that's the thing about look. We have to go back and understand. Like, I may not have all the truths, but I know that somebody else does. Mm-hmm. And in order to tell the story right, like you're saying, you brought up canon. The word canon. Like, I mean, it's like when you're trying to get the stories right, you want to make sure that it fits. If it, and if it's like, hey, you know, that's, that's not what happened, we need to protect the story. And so I think we have to understand that, like, truth comes in different sources. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's not just, oh, I just wrote this down, you know. It's like it comes from different mm-hmm. pieces. I mean, that's why we have... Luke says time and time again in his gospel that I went around and I got all these sources and this is the best I can come up with an ac- with an accurate representation of the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, what's his name? Mark. The gospel of Mark uh, is actually entirely told by Peter and then Mark sits there and he writes it down, but we don't call it Peter's gospel um, because it's kind of just the way they're Again, when the oral traditions worked, it was you kind of had an idea of exactly who this person was, who they traveled with, how they thought, and kind of by extension it would have been implied, not quite implied because that's a soft word, it would have been rather readily understood that this is actually the words of Peter because Mark wasn't the guy going around and preaching all of this. I've brought this up before about the Tradents. The Tradents were people who were the keepers of the stories. And if I were the student, if I was the student of the tradent, then the, then the tradent would have me stand up and, and tell the story. And then if I messed it up, he would make me sit down and he would say, no, you messed up on this point. Do it again. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so it wasn't just some haphazard way of the stories being protected. Yeah. Uh, I think we kind of get it... Um a little superior kind of in the way we think of it when we say, well, these were oral traditions. It's like, it's almost like we're saying these guys weren't smart enough to take the time to write everything down so we would actually know what happened. It was because they only had this, for the large majority of them, that they took so much time to take care of this, to perfect their memories. And uh, I mean, even in kind of the way the early at least the early first century Jewish school systems worked, the way of becoming a rabbi, everybody had to go to school, and basically by the end of it, the bare minimum you could mem- were allowed to only have memorized was the first five books of the Old Testament. I mean, I, I would die 
trying to memorize half of that. <laughs> My brain would explode, but I mean, that's the way these societies functioned. They uh, had such a great appreciation for their history that everybody had to know it. It isn't like nowadays where you send kids to school and it's, here's American history, it's in a book, figure it out on your own time, and kind of take from it what you will. It was, this is paramount to our identity as a people group. This is paramount to, yes? Oh, well, I was just kind of in agreement with you. Our version of that, of how our brains have changed, is when uh, no one had cell phones and you remembered everyone, all of your friends knew all of their phone numbers. And uh, now we know no one's phone number because we have this handy device. Okay, well, so back then, where everyone didn't know how to write or read, they would have had all of this in their head because they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a really good way for us to kind of think about that and put it in, wow, that actually can happen. Yeah, <laughs> and then you feel bad because now we're those people that don't remember phone numbers. Yeah. I think I know three off the top of my head and one's mine. Just one further point mm -hmm. is that some authorities, some kings, some different people trusted the oral more than the written mm -hmm. because the oral, the person was in front of you, whereas the written, it could be some guy off, yeah. but with the oral, you had that person to question, and so at least in, in some places and some times, the oral was more trusted than the written. Yeah, yeah it's harder to tamper with. And I mean, if uh, the complication that comes with taking the time and the energy to actually transfer their oral uh, teachings or traditions onto paper is somebody's going to rip it up. I mean, that happens at least once uh, with Beirut's first copy of Jeremiah as the king gets mad and burns it. And he's like, hey, can you make another one of those? Okay. <laughs> uh, so it's just a drastically different kind of way of understanding the transmission of knowledge, the passing on of wisdom and understanding. Um, where were we? We were talking about the authorship of Isaiah. Holy cow. Uh, I turned a page a while ago and we got going. Um, so next up is the purpose of the book. Um, and I liked to break this down into kind of my definition I use of prophecy. Uh, what it says about who God is, is God is the true ruler of Israel, its healer and its savior. Uh, but in the times of Isaiah, he's also their judge, jury, and executioner for their grievous sins against him. So, um, like this one and the other uh, exilic Exilic prophets. Uh, it's definitely not happy-go-lucky interpretation of who God is and his character uh, towards people. Um, he is very and rightfully demanding of their obedience and their repentance. And when that doesn't happen, you get this natural and normal progression of the wrath of God. Um, what it says about what God is doing, um, he's unleashing that wrath on his people. Um, 
who have boldly made themselves uh, in opposition to God and rejecting all of his instructions and his other prophets. Um, but his ultimate purpose is to do this in a way that is refining and purifying in order to redeem them and again claim them back to him. Uh, God has a definite plan going into this with the Assyrians and later the Babylonians for the southern kingdom. It's not just, you guys were bad, so I'm going to have these guys come beat the tar out of you, and then I'll feel better, and then you'll be gone, and it'll be okay. Um, God's plan is always uh, that someone, out of however many people get sent off, is going to say, we should learn a lesson from this. <laughs> it's like if you have a little kid that just doesn't get it, and then you hope that the next kid, maybe the second child will be better, because we've given up on the first one. It was the opposite. I was the good one. Mac was hopeless. Max, there was never any hope. Um, you kind of got to weed him out, and that's kind of what God's doing with his children. <laughs> they, Max moved away this week, so it'll be months before he hears about this, so I'm okay. <laughs> He's not that smart. <laughs> Before nobody checks email anymore. I don't. Oh gosh, you guys are gonna. I thought I could trust you guys. <laughs> Telling funny stories. All right, so. <laughs> Uh, what this book says about what God desires for his people. Um, God desires that their hard hearts be softened, um, that their blindness be taken away from them, so that they would see uh, just how foolish and rebellious they have been and return to him with convicted and sincere hearts. Uh, he doesn't want this to be an instance of, I don't want to get beat up again, so we'll kind of limp through things just enough to get by. Uh, his purpose is ultimately a genuine transformation of his people. Um. Hmm. All right, uh, dealing with Isaiah in the New Testament, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. I don't read every little footnote in my Bible, and if I had, I probably would notice that. At least as I read it, I'm not saying go through and read just the footnotes on your Bible. You would get really bored. You might as well read numbers. Um, the numbers in King James or New King James? <laughs> well, that would be almost fun. Uh, I was somewhere. Anyway, other than Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the entire New Testament with 66 times. Kind of ironic. 66 books in the Bible, 66 times. Hmm. What, can, what kind of prophetic conspiracy theories could we get out of this? Actually, I think there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. There you go. That reminds me of the debate that I was watching between the Muslim and the Christian because he was like, the Quran has all these fancy number tricks because it's inspired by God. So look, Isaiah, inspired by God. Number tricks. Yeah. We, can, we can make them up all day long, really. I mean, uh, pulling them out of your hats. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And of course, Psalms has multiple authors and it's just a bunch of fancy poems about their feelings. Uh, so Isaiah obviously worked so much harder. I don't mean that. I'm just 
it's a joke. Out of books with more of a structure to their message, a single book with an overarching message, uh, Isaiah is the longest quoted, um, nothing against Psalms at all. Um, and many of the titles that uh, we kind of attribute to Jesus uh, come out of the book of Isaiah. I actually have a, it's like a poster. I'd never want to call it a poster, though. Um, thing on my wall at my house, uh, and it's just a big list of every name they call Jesus in the Bible. And so I went through and I found all of the Isaiah ones. and It's actually really interesting uh, because again, kind of back to the whole oral tradition thing, is that people didn't just say, well, where'd this come from? They'd sit there and they'd say, that sounds a lot like Isaiah, or that sounds a lot like this prophecy, or that sounds a lot like this. Um, very astute and attentive people to uh, these kinds of things that take us quite a while to catch on to. Um, and then kind of lastly... I have on the last page a general layout of the structure of Isaiah. I am not a genius when it comes to making charts and graphs on Microsoft Word. I actually realized the other day when I loaded my computer to start working on this that I hadn't used it in several months and it wouldn't do anything. It was a nightmare. Um, if you want to go ahead and draw an arrow from Jerusalem to New Jerusalem, and then Assyria to Babylon, um, because this is kind of the flow that Isaiah takes to his book. We start with Jerusalem as well as the northern kingdom kind of being the center of the book. This is what we're dealing with, um, and that's them dealing with Assyria, and then gradually it moves towards dealing with the new Jerusalem. Again, Isaiah has a lot in common with uh, kind of the structure of Revelation in its own ways. Um, moving from this current and broken kingdom to the perfect and future kingdom of God, uh, and then on the far end, dealing with the current, or slash impending, uh, Assyrian conquest and deportation into later the Babylonian uh, conquest and deportation, and I guess Babylon should be like a one-up, because he does deal with Cyrus sending them back. I think we all know eventually they did get back. Um, one notable thing, about uh, other notable thing about the structure of Isaiah is it's hard to break down all of these parts into exactly what they are each accomplishing um, because the way that a lot of these guys' minds work uh, John does a lot. It's easier for me to understand Revelation in a lot of ways. I've just had, it seems more necessary to deal with Revelation because people bring it up every five minutes. And now I'm the guy that brings it up every five minutes because that's now the easy one uh, in parts. Um, these, the way a lot of these prophetic books of prophecy, I don't want to say prophetic books, these books of prophecy are kind of ordered is he starts dealing with an issue and then in Isaiah, he wraps it up uh, by praising God in each of these sections. And then the next section comes up, and it's a little different, but it sounds a lot similar. And then it wraps up the same way, and then it goes on and on and on. And you can sit there and think, he really didn't want to make progress, or he really wanted a really long book. 
neither one is accurate at all. Um, but this is just kind of the way they write. They reiterate their points in almost as many different ways as they can until somebody gets it in a certain place. Uh, easiest example for me is in Revelation you deal with the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets. They're all dealing with the same thing, and they're actually, there's one that's kind of broken off kind of confusingly where the seventh has moved a little further down. But they're dealing with the same general idea. It's just being presented again and again in slightly different ways. Um, and so that is also a prominent kind of attribute of Isaiah as we, as Ryan has to go through it and tell you guys what's actually going on in some of this stuff. <sighs> Does anyone have any other burning questions about Isaiah or prophecy or what have you before? I guess we have a week off. And then we'll deal with kind of more of the heart of the book. You're always excited. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.